please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, as we continue to think about and meditate upon the amazing love of a God that would die for us, can it be that we should gain an interest in our Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, in some ways are going to continue this theme, and if you've found your way there in Scripture and you're able to stand, please stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together this morning. We finished in uh, a few weeks ago as we came to the end of Jesus' long message there, and we've began a new section, and we begin that here in verse 10, where Luke tells us, now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done, and not on, and come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and, and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced, rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. You may be seated and would be encouraged through the reading of God's word this morning. Let's pray. And Father, we do ask that our hearts would be attuned to you this morning, that you would help us examine our own hearts in light of your word, that we would understand areas of our life that need to change, areas where we fail, that we would experience the freedom in your son Jesus Christ that you desire us to experience through your grace. We pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. Well, the internet is a really, really big place. It's estimated that in 2010, the internet contained 200 exabytes worth of information. Now, one, how many, you say, how many bytes are in an exabyte? Well, one exabyte has 10 with 17 zeros behind it, bytes of information. There's, there's 200 of those out on the internet. Google, the search engine provider, has only indexed according to some estimates, 0.004% of the internet. That's just a, a fraction of the massiveness that is the internet. So all the millions and millions of websites that, that Google has indexed, it's only a fraction of the entire size of the internet. There are more devices connected to the internet right now than there are people in the world. In fact, if your device is connected to the internet right now, maybe you can just turn that off and pay attention a little bit better. Now, there are more devices that are connected to the internet than there are people in the world. The internet, big place. And so what's interesting to me is sometimes how something kind of makes its way through all the clutter that is the internet and, and captures our attention, maybe a, 
a news article or a, a website or a YouTube video. In fact, there's a YouTube video that's kind of pushed its way through the millions and trillions of bytes of data that are out there on the internet, and it's kind of captured the attention of at least some of you, I know, because you've, you've emailed me about this YouTube video. The, the YouTube video is called, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. And in the video, a young man stands up and kind of recites a poem and, and uh, kind of looks cool as he does it, and uh, talks about why he hates religion but, but loves Jesus. And let me just read a couple stanzas of, of what he writes, what he, what he says to you. He says at the very beginning, what if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian, and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? Then a couple stanzas later, he says, religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice tend to ridicule God's people. They did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. He goes on, and there are some really, you know, there's some things, obviously, that I would disagree with in these stanzas. I I would argue, and I think Scripture would argue, that you need to distinguish between true and false religion, and religion is a, a good word, and Jesus didn't come to abolish religion, he came to abolish false religion, but and in fact, he, he set up the church, he set up the religious practices that we engage in, so I'd quibble with that, I, I'd correct some of the tone maybe in some areas, but overall, there are some very commendable things about what this young man is, is saying, aren't there? He's recognizing rightly that God is not concerned just about behavior modification, but God is concerned that our religion, our relationship with him, be based upon heart transformation. And what this poem rightly recognizes is that there's a disconnect between religiosity, rules and regulations and legalism, and true heart transformation and relationship with God, Christianity. It recognizes that, that division, that disconnect. It also rightly recognizes that God's grace is to be the, the central aspect of our relationship with him. And so there are some things about this YouTube video that I would say, yeah, that's right. And I believe that one of the reasons that this video has kind of made its way through all the clutter that is the millions and trillions of bytes of data out there on the internet, the reason it's kind of pushed its way through all that clutter is because it describes a phenomenon that many people have experienced. Many people have suffered at the hands of a burdensome religion masquerading as biblical Christianity. In fact, when I was younger, I, I went to a, a church in, in college that contained uh, some people in that church. In fact, the vast majority of the people in that church had come out of a very burdensome legalistic religious system. They had been a part of a system in which the leadership told them what they needed to do, told them, you know, gave them a lot of regulations about how they were supposed to act, how they were supposed to live. They told them when you were supposed to come to church, and they told them what you were supposed to believe, and, and exactly how you were supposed to manifest the Christian life in your life. It was a very uh, rules-oriented religious system, and people kind of came out of that 
that church's denomination, that religious system, and they, they were part of this church. And as I interacted with these people, I, I knew them you know, several years after they'd come out of this system, I noticed that many of them were still struggling with having been a part of that system. Some people came out of that system, and they really struggled with understanding God's grace. It was a very foreign concept to them that God loved them, enjoyed his relationship with him, with them and wanted them to experience joy. That, that was a hard, they understood it sometimes intellectually, but, but living that out was ex- extremely difficult for them. They were scared of it in many ways. And they felt the effects of having been under this burdensome system. Some people came out of this system and they said, okay, everything that I was involved in was part of this legalistic structure, do this, don't do that, you know, sit in this place, take these notes. It was this religious, burdensome, legalistic system, forget it. And they kind of said, everything that was part of that, I'm, I'm no longer engaging in, and now I'm going to embrace grace. And by grace, they just basically meant lawlessness. <laughs> and so their understanding of grace was, was perverted. And they threw out a lot of good stuff with the bad stuff. And still other people that, were, that came out of this church said, you know what, um, Christianity is, is, is a joke, and, and I can't believe I bought into that for so long. I'm out of here, and they just left the faith altogether. This morning, as we look at this story in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, if you remember earlier, Jesus has said he's coming to bring division, and I think here in these verses we see some of the division that, that Christ creates. He creates a division between false religion burdensome religion and true religion and we see the opposition to Christ by these people that are practitioners of a false burdensome religion and we see the embracing of this freeing religion that Christ offers and I believe that this message could be extremely important for some of you in fact I would go as far as to say this may be in terms of just a single message one of the most important messages for many of you that we go through during our entire time of studying the gospel of Luke Some of you may want to take this message, and we have it online. You may want to listen to it later. You may want to take a a, a CD of it, ask Diane at the Welcome Center, whoever's running the Welcome Center, and ask them for a copy of it. Some of you may just want to simply take this this passage and and share it with others, because I I believe this may be a very influential passage of Scripture for you or or other people you love. Some of you right now, in fact, are, are part of a burdensome religious system. Maybe you're part of a church in which it's a very burdensome, legalistic, ritualistic, religious system. Maybe you're not part of that denomination that's legalistic, but in your own heart, you've been practicing a false, burdensome religion. Or maybe some of you have have come out of a denomination or a church or a, a personal time in which you struggle with this burdensome religious lifestyle. And as you come out of that, now you're wondering, okay, what was true and what was false with what I've experienced? How do I distinguish between what, what's right and what's wrong in terms of, of religion, in terms of what a church is supposed to be like? And so maybe this will be helpful for you this morning as we think about what a burdensome religion looks like and what the religion that Christ offers us looks like. The main idea, the central point that I want you to grasp as we go through these verses is that false religion enslaves, true religion frees. 
false religion enslaves, true religion frees. True religion frees us to worship Jesus Christ. False religion enslaves, true religion frees. Let's first of all look at the true religion that Christ offers us here in verses 10 through 13. Verse 10 says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Let me just kind of stop the story here for just a moment. We've seen Jesus teaching before on the Sabbath. In fact, it's it's one of his customs to engage in teaching whenever he goes into a community. We don't know which community he finds himself in, in in this particular Sabbath morning, but here he is. He's gone into the synagogue, and a synagogue would have been a local assembly of Jewish people, and uh, he goes into the synagogue, and it would have been this, this room in which he would go to the center, and there'd be some sort of lectern, some sort of pulpit, and the scroll would be rolled out on this pulpit, on this lectern, and he would read from a portion of the prophets or the law, and then he would explain it. He would expound upon it. Now, why is it important to point that out, that this, that's what Jesus is doing? Simply because of this. Some people, as they talk about the problems with false legalistic religious systems, speak negatively about the teaching of God's Word and about the authority of teaching in our contemporary context. I think it's important to note that Jesus is engaged in teaching in a context, in a day in which the proclamation of God's word had lost some of its authority. Remember, whenever people notice that Jesus is teaching, they notice that he's teaching as, as one who has authority. There's something unique about his ability to proclaim the truths of God. I've, I've read this quote to you before, but I think it bears repeating. It's kind of interesting. Teaching has lost its authority in our day. It's lost its authority in Jesus' day. There's a, uh, it's throughout church history, this has been a problem. There's a novel called Barchester Towers. It's written in 1857. And uh, one of the characters in the novel says this. He says, there's no greater hardship inflicted on mankind in civilized countries than the necessity of listening to sermons. No one but a preaching clergyman has the power of compelling an audience to sit still and be tormented. A member of parliament can be coughed down or shouted out. Town councilors can be tabooed, but no one can rid himself of the preaching clergyman. He is the bore of the age, the nightmare that disturbs our Sunday's rest. <laughs> that was, yeah, 1857, not today, okay? But there's this, this sense in which, man, the, 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 the preaching has lost its authority. In fact, a contemporary uh, author, David Buttrick, has says, said this, there's no obvious social justification for preaching. People today do not sense that they have to have preaching in their lives the same way that they must have an automobile or the services of a family physician. From a social perspective, preaching may be superfluous. Why do preachers preach? Jesus is proclaiming God's word in a culture in which teaching has lost much of its authority, and, and you and I find ourselves in a similar cultural context. So, but anyway, here's Jesus. He's engaged in, in teaching God's word on the Sabbath, and as he teaches, verse 11 in the text tells us that there's a woman, and for 18 years she had a, a disabling spirit. And how did this disabling spirit manifest itself? Well, itself, she was bent over and, and could not fully straighten herself. Now, some have speculated that perhaps there was some sort of fusing of the, the bones in the spine that caused her to be unable to straighten herself. We don't know exactly what the physical manifestation of this was, but, but somehow 
there's a spiritual component to it as well. Somehow, spiritually, this, this uh, spirit had oppressed her and affected her in a physical way. So that there's a spiritual component to her physical ailment. Okay, now, she is, for 18 years, unable to straighten herself. And she's living in a culture in which there's an honor-shame system. And so for 18 years, she goes around hunched over and is in a very pitiable state. In fact, right now, I've been hunched over for just a few moments. And frankly, it's a little embarrassing. I feel a little embarrassed standing like this. And I've just done it for a couple seconds. For her, for year after year, she goes around in this culture hunched over in this, in this state. And the response of a person seeing her like this should have been pity. That should have been the response of the heart when they see this woman come in hunched over like that. Jesus sees this woman come in, and as he's teaching, he stops and he calls her to a position of prominence. Instead of keeping her in the back, where the, the, woman, the women would have come in and said kind of at the back of the room uh, in the synagogue, he calls her to stand in a position of honor right next to him, kind of breaking the, the social barriers here, the, the shame-honor system. And these are the words that he speaks to her here on a Sabbath. He says, verse 12, Woman, you are freed, you are released from your disability. Whatever has been preventing her from being healed, whatever's been preventing her and affecting her in a physical way, Jesus releases her from it. There's no indication that there was uh, you know, faith on her part. There's no indication at this moment that she asked him to do something. Jesus simply sees her and with the power of his word immediately releases her. Jesus in his authority immediately allows her to experience release from this. And in fact, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, Several times we've seen the immediate nature of Jesus' healing. Luke 4.39, whenever he's serving, uh, talking to Simon Peter's mother-in-law, it says he rebuked the fever, it left her, and immediately she rose. Luke 5.25, the, the, the paralyzed man, it says as Jesus healed him, immediately he rose up before them. Luke 8.44, the woman comes up behind Jesus and touches him, and immediately she's healed. Over and over again, Jesus, by his authority, immediately causes healing in people's lives. And this woman, who for 18 years has been hunched over, Jesus brings her to the front. He says, woman, you are free, and he places his loving hands upon her, and immediately she experiences freedom, a freedom that she hasn't known for 18 years. And as she experiences the freedom that Christ offers, how does she respond? Look at the text. How does she respond? It says, she's made straight and she glorified God. She responds in worship. She finds freedom and release in Christ. I want to give you five characteristics here of, of true religion. Five characteristics of, of true God-centered, Christ-glorifying religion. Characteristic number one, a true religion is, is word-centered. A true religion takes God's word seriously. A true religion rejects a, a false dichotomy between doctrine and, and practice. There's a tension in our, 
contemporary culture that says a person is either going to be focused on doctrine or they're going to be focused on, on doing things. In fact, as I think about different ages in church history and kind of the, the battles that pastors and, and congregations have had to fight, I think this is one of the, the central defining issues of the ministry of Bethany Community Church. So often, churches want to either say, we're going to focus on doctrine and ignore practical application of our doctrine, or we're going to be focused on practical application of the Christian life, and we're going to kind of downgrade the importance of theology. I believe at, at Bethany Community Church, one of our tasks that God has given us is to be a, a voice in the community, a voice in the world that says, no, no, we have to understand God. You must understand the nature of his character. You must know him and what he desires us to do and why he desires us to do it and why he's a loving God and what his wrath looks like and, and what his holiness looks like. We must understand the character of God. And yet at the same time, as we understand the true character and nature of God, there has to be a, a practical outworking of that. If we truly know God, it has to, to work itself out in, in, in tangible ways. And so we must be a church that holds the truth about God's truth about his word and teaching it and at the same time practicing it true religion is word-centered it begins with the proclamation of god's word people talk about how jesus came to establish a kingdom of of peace and healing and joy and that's true but notice as you go through the gospel accounts jesus is also engaged in teaching and instructing people of the nature of the kingdom and the nature of God, and not just allowing them to experience the physical blessings of the kingdom. So true religion finds, first of all, that it's word-centered. But secondly, true religion is also compassionate. True religion is also compassionate. James chapter 1 has a very famous verse about the nature of true religion. Beginning in verse 22 of James chapter 1, James says, but be, doers of the good, be, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a, a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who, who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And then verse 26 says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So a person who uh, can't control what they say and is deceiving their heart and not practicing true religion. But look at what he says in verse 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so a person who's practicing true religion is a person who sees others in need and acts upon that need and perseveres in righteousness. There's a story, an old story, maybe you've heard it, of a, a pastor who was sitting one night in his study and he, he heard a, a knock on his door and he opened the door and it was a, a person from the church and he didn't recognize this person. He said, yeah, I, I go to your church and and there's something you need to know about another family in this church. And the pastor said, well, yes, please tell me. He said, well, this, this family's had some, some tough times. The, the dad has been laid off from work for, for several months and, and still hasn't been able to find a job. And the pastor said, my, that's, that's terrible. And, and what else? And he said, well, the, the wife has just uh, been, been very, very ill. 
she's been sick and, and is unable to, to do things as well. And the pastor said, my goodness, this, this sounds awful. He says, yes, and it gets worse. And the children are malnourished. And, and on top of all of this, uh, they're about to be evicted. They haven't been able to pay their rent, and they're going to be evicted tomorrow out into the cold. And the pastor says, my, that is, that is awful. How do you know about this? And the man said, well, I'm the landlord. Is this thing working? Hello? Yeah. So I'm the landlord. True religion sees people in need and doesn't say, well, man, that's someone else's responsibility to, to care for them. That's someone else's responsibility to, to meet that need. True religion says, I see a person in need and I respond with compassion. And it's a compassion that compels me to act. Jesus, as he encounters this woman who's been disabled for 18 years, responds with compassion. He is inwardly moved with a desire to help and assist and aid. Do you want to know if the religion which you practice is true or false religion? Examine your heart and see whether or not you have a heart of compassion, a heart that desires to meet the needs that people have. Third characteristic here of, of true religion, it's not just word-centered, not only is it compassionate, a true religion is freeing. True religion is freeing. Keep your fingers there in Luke 13 and turn kind of toward the end of your Bible to 1 John. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. This is really a verse that many of us should memorize and, and meditate upon. 1 John chapter 5 describes true religion. It says, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And so how, how do we know that we're, we're truly in the faith? How do we know that we have a right relationship with God? Well, we love other Christians and we obey God and, and we're keep, we love God and we're keeping his commandments. And then well, what, what about his commandments? How do we know if these are real commandments or not real commandments? Look at verse 3. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are what? They're not burdensome. Whenever this woman comes into the synagogue and Jesus sees her, he doesn't start laying more burdens, either physically or, or metaphorically, spiritually, here on this woman. He is offering her freedom. So often in false religious systems, we'll talk about this in a moment, the idea is to place more burdens upon people. True religion offers freedom and release and joy in God and a believer comes to the commandments of God as found, in, as found in Scripture and finds freedom in them, joy in obedience, not oppression. Whenever I was in second grade, my grandmother read uh, Little Pilgrim's Progress to me, kind of the children's version. And I, I can remember listening to her read it and, and hearing about young Pilgrim and the Christian who had that heavy burden placed upon him. And it was was really stressing me out. I wanted this, this poor kid to get the, the burden released from him. And finally, he, he goes to the cross, and you, you hear this in the, the, the big person's story as, as Christian comes to the cross. Listen to what Bunyan writes in Pilgrim's Progress. It says, Christian came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross. said that Christian, as he came to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. 
and so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in, and I saw that burden, that burden of sin, no more. And then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood for a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. The very end of kind of this section, Christian gives three leaps for joy and goes on his way singing, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor ought ease the nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss, must hear the burden fall from off my back, must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame. For me, true religion, true religion, a right relationship with with Christ, the religion that Christ establishes, is a freeing religion, not one that places additional burdens upon people. A fourth characteristic that I want us to think about about true religion is that true religion is, is worshipful. It's worshipful. As this woman experiences joy in Jesus Christ, she responds by glorifying God. As she encounters the person of Jesus Christ and experiences the freedom that he brings, she responds by glorifying God. That's a mark of true religion. Is it causing a person to engage in worship of God, in deeper worship of God, or is it causing a person to become distracted from worshiping God? And the fifth characteristic, finally, notice this from the text, uh, true religion is found in Christ. True religion is, is found in Christ. Religion is not found simply in doing religious things. It's not found simply in attending the synagogue. True religion is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's only when this woman comes into contact with Jesus Christ that she experiences the freedom in true religion and faith in Jesus Christ. So that's true religion, word-centered, compassionate, freeing, worshipful, found in Christ. Now, let's look at, at the false religion, the false religion. Verse 14 tells us this. So remember the story. We've kind of paused it here for a second, but here's this woman, 18 years, hunched over like this. She would have been in this community for 18 years, most likely. She's been a member of the community her entire life, the last 18 years, while she's been hunched over. People have seen her live this way. The, the leader of the synagogue would have seen her live this, live this way. And even though she's been like this for 18 years, she comes in the synagogue this morning, and Jesus offers her freedom, offers her freedom. Verse 14 tells us that there's a, a leader of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, that, that sees all of this take place. Now, now, who is this guy? This guy would have been a person that was a, a lay person. He and some other leaders would have been in charge of making sure that the synagogue stayed orthodox and right things were taught. There would have been many different kind of thoughts within the Jewish life, and, and there was a spectrum in which that was okay, but he was to make sure that, that really bad things didn't take place here. And he as he looks at what goes on in the synagogue, is in charge of making sure that, that things are right, that nothing, nothing too terrible takes place. Now, as he watches what unfolds, 
he sees a woman who's been a part of his community for 18 years freed from this, this terrible, debilitating illness. 18 years she's been like this. And you would think that his first initial response would have been joy. This poor woman who's walked around looking at people's toes for the last 18 years now has the opportunity to stand upright and she begins glorifying God and the ruler of the synagogue sees this take place and he's like, oh, this is great. Oh, I can't believe this. That's not how he responds, is it? His initial response, the first response of his heart to this amazing thing is indignation. Indignation. The big event that's just taken place in his mind is the Sabbath has been violated. That's the, you know, that's the headline of the day. Sabbath violated. Subheading, woman healed after 18 years. What kind of thinking does that? What kind of thinking thinks that? Warped thinking, right? False religion. He sees this take place, and he doesn't challenge Jesus directly. He addresses the crowd, the the people that are there, and he says this. He says, as he's indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, he says to the people, look, everybody, hey, 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 let's not get ahead of ourselves. There are six days in which work ought to be done. That's the rule. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. This thing that Jesus is doing, really nice, Jesus, but six days. This is Sunday. Six days. Be healed on those days. When you want a supernatural thing of God, Sunday through Friday, fine. No Saturday. It's silly, isn't it? It's worse than silly. It's tragic. You say, well, he was, man, he was too literal. He, he interpreted Scripture too literally. No, that wasn't his problem, was it? His problem was that he viewed Scripture and therefore viewed life through legalistic lenses, through the lenses of tradition and, and, and man-made regulations. This man had been a disciple under another man, another rabbi. And as he had been a disciple under this other rabbi, he had tried to emulate that rabbi perfectly. And everything that rabbi taught and believed, he, he emulated that. And, and then there's a, a point where he was able to teach other people. And, but that rabbi had had another rabbi, and that rabbi had another. And there had been the kind of this process of tradition of, of understanding God's law and God's commandments through these oral traditions. The problem wasn't Scripture. I mean, yes, Scripture does say, Scripture does say, six days you shall labor and do all your work. That's Exodus 20, verse 9. It also says, the next verse, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. Deuteronomy 5, 13, six days you shall labor and do all your work. And, and so, yes, that was what Scripture said. And And notice that the first thing that he says, the synagogue leader says, is is a true statement. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Is that biblical? Yes. But the problem is that he hadn't plumbed the depths of Scripture as he ought. Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, if he had 
thought through what Isaiah 58 said, instead of looking at it through the lens of his cultural traditions, he would have understood what had just happened and how God would respond to something like this. In Isaiah 58, the prophet Isaiah is talking about, kind of taking on the perspective of the people and talking from God's perspective. And the people say, why have we fasted? Why have we engaged in these religious activities and you've not noticed it, God? We've humbled ourselves and, and you take no knowledge of it. Why is that? And God responds, because in the day of your, your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is this the fast that I should use? The day that God chooses would be for a fast would be for a person who says to humble himself, to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. This is an acceptable fast, God will go on to say. He talks about what they, what they need to do. He says in verse 13, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. And so if this ruler of the synagogue had, had studied God's word more carefully, he would have understood that the Sabbath was to be a delight a delightful day, a day of joy, a day of turning from one's own pleasure and pursuing the pleasures and the delight of God. Jesus hears the religious leaders say these things, and verse 15 he responds, The Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Those of you who have just seen what's taken place and under the guise of piety, are saying that something wrong has just occurred, you're a hypocrite. You're hypocrites. Why? Look at the comparison he draws. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Now, we mentioned these oral traditions, all these rules and regulations they had to describe what work you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Well, interestingly enough, there were specific provisions made for untying your animals and making sure they, they got the water that they needed. So they understood that not doing work on the Sabbath meant, okay, I've still got these animals I've got to water, so I'm going to be able to do that. And so they, they made particular rules and regulations for how you got water to your animals. And Jesus says, look, you understand that is still encompassed in, in not working on the Sabbath. You'll untie an animal and get it some water. Then he says, verse 16, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, he's including her in the covenant community, ought not this woman, a, a daughter of Abraham, part of God's covenant community, be loosed, be untied, on the Sabbath day. If the purpose of a Sabbath day is to delight in the Lord and to experience his pleasure, and if you recognize rightly that there are times in which a person can, can engage in activity, why have you made exceptions in the law for your own livestock but refused to allow this woman to experience God's loosening, release, freedom? 
And then verse 17, I believe, is crucial to understanding what's just taken place. It says, as he said these things, notice, the word, notice how many times the word all appears here. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Remember at the end of chapter 12, we saw that Christ is going to cause division. There's going to be separation among families based upon how they respond to Jesus and his, and his mission. And, and that division takes place here in this story. There's a division between a false, oppressive religious system and the true religion that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. What are the characteristics of false religion that we see here? Let me give you five characteristics of false religion that we see in this text. The first one is this that Jesus warns us against. First of all, false religion is hostile. False religion is hostile. It's hostile here to Jesus Christ and his ministry. My dad used to have this, this saying when I was a kid. He said, you know, my, my goal as a parent is always to say yes whenever I can. Now, as a kid, I thought he failed many times in implementing that policy. But he said, you know, look, my desire as a dad is when you come to me whenever I can to say yes. A church, as people come to a church and say, look, I want to get involved in, in God's work. I want to be doing things for the kingdom. I want to be involved in ministry. A true religious culture is going to, to be excited about that. A false religion is going to be, a false religious structure is going to be a place that's hostile toward God's work being done and makes it very difficult for people to engage in ministry. In a false religion, in an oppressive, burdensome religious structure, a person's going to be always worried about offending the wrong people. They're going to be worried about arguments that, that arise as they try to engage in ministry. Uh, in a, an oppressive religious culture, leaders are going to make it very difficult for people to be doing God's work. False religion is hostile toward seeing God's work being done in the lives of other people. They're upset about God getting the glory they want the glory for. A false religion is hostile toward God's ministry taking place. Secondly, secondly, a false religion is compassionless. False religion is compassionless. A false religion is people are seen who are in need, they are ignored or not treated in the right way. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan that we looked at some months ago. In the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, we saw that as the, the, the lawyer is trying to justify himself before Jesus, and he says, well, what must, must I do to have eternal life? And, and Jesus talks about how the person who truly has eternal life is going to be a, a person who, who sees others in, in need and has compassion toward them and acts upon that. A, a person who truly has eternal life is a compassionate person. And remember the first two people in the story of the Good Samaritan see this, this person lying on the road, and, and do they respond with compassion? No, they're so concerned with their own ritualistic regulations about how they should live and how they should act that they fail to meet a need. False religion is compassionless. False religion allows us to construct these scenarios for ourselves that allow us to say, I don't have to meet this need. My religion doesn't 
force me to do anything with this need that I see. I was reading a, a story about a, a pastor. This is kind of a parable that I, I read uh, this last week. It was about a pastor who found that he had a very unusual gift. He found that whenever he sat down to pray with someone, they immediately lost every religious conviction they had, which was a very unfortunate gift for a pastor to have. And so he would sit down with someone, he'd pray with them, and they'd look up and say, you know what, I no longer believe everything I just believed before we prayed together. And so the pastor learned, uh, well, I should stop praying with people. This is a, a very, very terrible gift for me to have. So he would preach sermons, but he wouldn't pray with people. Well, one day he found himself having coffee with a businessman, and the businessman told him a little bit about his life. He said, well, you know, I've, I've been engaged in this business, and, and yeah, it's cost me a lot of time away from my family, and, and yeah, I've had to do some, some, you know, things that I wish I didn't have to do in my business practice. I've had to stab some people in the back. I, I've had to work long hours. I've, I've had to sometimes uh, do some questionably uh, ethical things in, in my business practices, but, you know, I just have my faith that I fall back on. I understand that I'm, I'm able to do these things because God's placed me in this position. And over and over, as the man talked to this pastor, he used his religion to back up the things that he were, was doing, which were wrong. And the pastor realized that this man had constructed a religion for himself that allowed him to operate in a way that was completely contrary to what Christianity called him to do. And so the pastor said, let me pray for you. <laughs> Prayed for him, and the man immediately lost all his religious convictions. <laughs> According to the parable, he goes back, he begins to, to do his work, and, and now he no longer has the religious justification to do these terrible things that he was doing. He realizes how wrong they are. He repents. He finds faith in Jesus Christ and lives a true religious life. <clears throat> False religion is compassionless. It allows us, under the guise of Christianity or whatever religion we want to call it, to live compassionless lives. And it sets up a, a compassionless structure that makes us feel good about ourselves, but, true, but fails to allow us to engage in the work that God has called us to do. False religion is compassionless. Number three, false religion is legalistic. False religion is legalistic. Instead of having a passion for Jesus Christ and, and wanting people to, to experience the freedom that is in Jesus Christ and to experience the joy that is in Jesus Christ, there's not a zealousness for those things. There's a zealousness for legalistic doctrines. There's not a, a, a zealousness for Christ, but for legalistic doctrines, for having people live in a certain way that conforms to what you believe they should be doing. Colossians chapter 2 descri describes this phenomenon. In, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul is speaking against legalism, and he, and he talks about the ineffectiveness in legalism and in, in living the Christian life. He says in verse 16, he says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism or worship of angels or going in detail about visions puffed up without reason in his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive to the world do you submit to, to worldly regulations? Don't touch this. Don't handle that. Don't taste. Don't touch. 
These all refer to things that as they are used, perish according to human precepts and teachings. These have the appearance, they have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But listen to this, they are of no value, they are of no value, of zero value, in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. You can put all sorts of regulations and restrictions upon yourself. You can say, look, I'm not going to watch this television program or any TV. I'm going to do this with my TV. I'm going to do this with media. I'm going to do this in my relationships with other people. I'm going to not wear this. I'm going to wear this. I'm going to not say these words. I am going to say these words. There's all sorts of rules and regulations and all sorts of things you can put upon yourself. And false religion loves doing this. But you know how much value all those things have in fighting the flesh? Zip. None. They're of absolutely, positively no use to you in fighting your flesh apart from the life-transforming work of Jesus Christ. And a false religion promotes legalism. True religion promotes Christ. And as we pursue Christ, there are things that change in our conduct the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we dress. But those things in and of themselves are of no value to you, apart from Christ. But false religion loves them. True religion is freeing. False religion is is legalistic. Fourthly, false religion is controlling. It's controlling False religion loves to have leaders that that tell you what you can do. False religion is is full of of people in the church that that want to control the things that you do, and there's kind of an obsession with, are you doing this or not doing this? False religion is extremely controlling. And and notice that the leader of the synagogue here, as he interacts with Jesus, doesn't interact with Jesus directly, but he appeals, makes his appeal to the crowds. Hey, everybody, hey, 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 whoa, 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 guys, guys, six days work. This is Sabbath. No healing. No healing today. Fifthly, fifth characteristic of false religion, false religion is hypocritical. It's hypocritical. And Jesus picks up on it, doesn't he? He says, look, you don't care about God. You say you do, but really, you've made provisions for yourself. you figured out how to how to control other people, and you figured out how to make loopholes in the law for yourself and bind up other people, both literally and figuratively. False religion is hypocritical. This past week on Thursday, the kids, uh, the older kids and, and Whitney and I uh, went, went skiing for the day up, up uh, kind of in northern Illinois, and uh, just kind of a fun day of skiing, and kind of the, the last run of the day, we, we were waiting to ride up the lift, and my daughter looks at me, and, and she said, uh, hey, Dad. I said, yeah, sweetie. She goes, um, don't tell too many stories about us falling. <laughs> so whatever do you mean, sweetie? How, how, what do you, me tell stories about our family that are embarrassing? Perish the thought. <laughs> I did ask her if I could tell her that she asked me that, and she said yes. Don't tell too many stories about 
us falling. A perfectly reasonable request. But it's also the words in a spiritual, our spiritual lives that we who are hypocritical say, right? Don't, let's not talk about stories of us falling. Let's talk about other people's failings and fallings. You see, a false religion, either intentionally or sometimes unintentionally, doesn't even recognize the failings and the fallings that are within the own, its own system. A person who's able to, to manage these legalistic waters of false religion, doesn't, uh, the person that's doing that doesn't recognize that they've even fallen. False religion is hypocritical because it sets a standard for, them, a person sets a standard for themselves that they can meet. And as they meet these standards, they fail to meet far more important standards. And as they criticize people for not meeting their standards, they are at the, at simultaneously, simultaneously in violation of far graver standards, the holiness that God desires us to pursue and to have through faith in Jesus Christ. False religion enslaves, but true religion frees and allows us to worship. And as I've talked with many of you, I, I know that this is a struggle that, that so many people face. And what I hope you he see here again, once again, false religion enslaves it calls you to participate in a system that doesn't bring joy, it doesn't bring uh, peace, and most importantly, doesn't glorify God. A true religion is, is word-centered. We find it in, in God's word, and, and true religion provides us joy and peace and causes us to engage, as we find it in Jesus Christ, in worship of him. And it glorifies God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for religion that is found in you. We can have a relationship with you through, through faith in your son Jesus and, and cause us to walk in obedience with you in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.